The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is Marcus Samuelson, who was born in Ethiopia, moved to Sweden at a very young age, came to New York, and was the executive chef at Aquavit, a restaurant that was incredible and is no longer here, that I, I ate at a lot as a young man. Uh, then uh, open Red Rooster, which is a sensation. Um, was uh, cooked the first Obama State dinner. Was the youngest three-star chef uh, ever. James Beard Award winner, TV star. If you're listening to this, you know who Marcus is. And uh, hey, Marcus, thanks for doing this. Thank you for having and me. And author, which we're going to talk about a lot, because uh, your new book, the title of which is... Red Rooster. Um, the Red Rooster Cookbook really talks about the hustle and food and the people of Harlem. Well, it does. And it's not, I mean, it, it's weird as I was reading it, I was like, I wish that you could also just publish the essays yeah, separately yeah. <laughs> for people. No, you know, for yeah. people who don't want to cook. Yeah. There's so, and who might miss the book. Yeah. And a lot of people listening to the show are big readers. Yeah. Those essays are really incredible. Yeah. It's a, a really jazz, like Ralph Ellison informed version of a memoir. I know you've written Thank a you. memoir, but this thing is consciously written to emulate a certain style, Harlem Renaissance style mm. and then Ralph Ellison style in a way that really moved me. Thank you so much for, first of all, it took four years to make the book, to do the book. And I felt like, you know, being in Harlem and having the luxury to live and work in Harlem, I can't present this about my 150 recipes. This is just not about the 150 recipes, right? This is so much more about the larger dialogue where we sit in this moment where we sort of fight and strive for diversity, but also rather than just giving a real context and texture to it. So our restaurant, the food is really inspired by two major shifts, right? The Great Migration, the foods and the culture that we got out of the Great Migration, and then global immigration, right? Those are the two things. And that might not be what people think about Harlem when they think on the larger scale of what Harlem is, but that's really what we unpack in the book. Well, yeah, and as reading the, the book, I kept coming to all these images from film. I mean, you can't avoid thinking about Malcolm X's yeah. first journey, yeah. uh, both in the book as it's described and then the yeah. way Spike filmed it. Yeah. You're just constantly thinking of him walking into those places and seeing it. Mm. And because you really do feel when he's walking down the street at night sure. that entire thing and just the whole history of it and that was part of you know you talk about spike i talked to spike a lot during when i did the book and he's like constantly like what's going on how's the book doing how's it coming i'm like but you're right malcolm both the book but actually the film visually took me there and it was helpful for me as, as i'm sure well, you don't mention it in the book but i picked mm. up on it because it was it's so clear and i can see why you don't mention it because mm. you say the words malcolm x people think of something else but that yeah. beginning there's that rapturous thing uh when he comes to new york after he's listening that they're listening to the joe lewis fight on the yeah. train and then he comes to new york and it's this rapturous look at harlem and that feeling mm. is in your book which is mm. a hard thing to do yeah. man, as a writer it's well amazing. i mean it was also about slowing it down now think about the other uh, great parallel here it's like music right and just to think about what the great migration gave us it gave us everything from bebop hip-hop jazz of course and then rhythm and blues and you know the book has different tempos, you know what I mean? It's like a musical act. And I want to, sometimes I want to go to high speed, it's two, three o'clock in the morning. Sometimes I want to slow it down. And of course, on Sundays, all about gospel. So in a cookbook to try to mimic this moment and making those different tempo shifts, um, which we do in the restaurant all the time. You start an appetizer, it's seductive, it's a handshake, right? Then you go into main course and it's big and you're celebrating and you sh you know, you're showing off that you're in the restaurant, it's eight o'clock, uh, whatever, right? It's different, it's a different mood swing. And that's sometimes it's just 10.30 on a Sunday morning and you're tired and you're beat up. Well, it's all in there and it's um, the control. I wanna, I, I, I wanna talk about, um, you open the book with the story of you being mugged in New York City. Yeah, and every the, cookbook opens with that, sure. right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's funny, you know, there is this trend, of, it's not even a trend, there's this idea um, that Peter Meehan, I guess, was one of the first guys to start doing it, where these cook, where, where people are writing these books, Chang's book does it, Ivan Raman's book is great, Chris yeah. Yang wrote it with him, all about, where, which also has these essays uh, uh, that tells you the story of the chef, sure. which I think is really Im important, um, because you guys, the elite chefs of the world now, who are really doing it still, 
are putting so much of yourselves into what you do yeah, that the, it's no different than reading a memoir of a guitar player. The moment where we, that got us to what we're doing, the, you know, chefing is all about making choices, right? But the moments before that, leading up to that, there's some fucked up stuff that happened to get you to that moment, right? And me being mugged at, uh, in Hell's Kitchen, that was a moment. That was a pivotal well, moment. Well, for me. I got I, I to get the hell out of here. Well, but it wasn't just you got to get the hell out of here, right? Because the punchline of the story is that you chased down the mugger yeah. to ask him to give you back your visa papers. Exactly. So I, I just, can you just talk about, because of the moment we're in right now. Oh my God. Can you just talk about what those papers meant to you oh God, and give some context to the immigrant band? Because that's the thing. They're a tourist. I mean, I, you read it. You say they're a tourist visa, yeah. but it was what allowed you to work. Can you talk about what those papers meant? And you actually chased the mugger down to get your papers you, back. And it, if I you can't tell you how hard it hit me reading that yeah. now. If you're American today and you have your passport, it's almost impossible to sort of understand what that stamp, what that becoming American means, right? Everything you do up until that point, you do it on a nervous tip, right? It's really important. You can't, God forbid you, 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 you're at a barbecue and you piss in the park, you can get picked up. God forbid you maybe throw away a can of beer somewhere. Like we're all these imperfect humans, right? So you felt this way. It's important. Every I want to take it even slowly because this is really important because you were, you had a big job. Yes. You were an important guy in New York. You were Swedish. You weren't from but, a country and you still felt like it was tenuous. Yeah, like at they, any moment they, it could break. They're from two different levels because right. for me, there's also, this is all happening during Giuliani's sort of Luima case, you know? So this is like, first of all, before anything, I'm a black man in New York City, which your chances of getting stopped, messed with, picked up are so big, right? Much, much higher, especially as a chef. You, you come home late, you've been drinking, you might not act right. Still doesn't mean you should be picked up by the cop, but the chances are very high. So you have that. And then at the same time, your papers are not where they're supposed to be yet, right? You're in this waiting period, right? And uh, so nobody, you know, my job was big, my stars were great, but if your paper's not in order, you're out of here, right? So this moment that I've worked for, and again, as a black man, you don't get a lot of chances, so don't mess up this moment for me. Anybody could take away your, your, this moment for you. And as a man, you're very aware of this. Like, you're kind of like, you're not really fully official until you get the stamp. So that, you know, crack addict, whatever he was on, I was not, I hadn't worked that hard. It was all the moments in France, Japan, Switzerland, me and my dad sitting down talking, I'm going to America. That guy was not going to be the guy to fuck it up. To end right? this dream this for is you. Not, I might go down because I had a bad review. I might go down because I was drinking too late with my buddies. But you are not taking my dream away. And once you're fueled with that, it's a different emotion. Like, it changed. Like, his eyes got fearful because I'm running towards him now. You yes. might have the knife, but I, I'm, I'm fighting for my life here. Yeah, and because he took your papers, not because yes. he took your wallet or your credit no, cards no. or any of that, but because he took the possibility of mm. being in America. Yeah. He made that uh, perilous for yeah. you. So and how that, does that connect for you to what's going on? How do you feel? You know, I, I know so I'm walking down the streets and I look in people's eyes and you can see how that even just a friendly look to someone matters so much now. So mm, how does it I'm, connect to you this to is, what these people are going through now? This, obviously the... The absolute worst thing that ever happened to our city is, is of course, 9-11, right? And that's as messed up as I felt and doubt about why I'm in New York and all this stuff. Yeah, you, you capture uh, that great yeah, in the book, too. But two week, three weeks ago, when that happened, right, I was watching the TV and crying because that it is... The immigration. Immigration is so much to the core, not only of who I am as a person, but to what... Food is in America today, right? Yes. So here, who's to say that the greatest next sort of Lebanese or Syrian or Korean or Ethiopian is not on JFK at that very moment, right? It is, and also it's everything about being American is a, is a challenge right now. And um, it's, it's deeper. But you know what? The good thing is also this moment will be documented. And uh, a lot of people, three and a half years from now, circa, will have some a lot of explaining to do, and that's the greatest thing with democracy. Yeah, who I'm, were you? Did you? I mean, like Eslin, you know, did what, you stand up? What, you know, what do you I, stand? For? What do you stand for? I have a son. He's going to ask me. I think about it all the time. Dad, what did you do? 
Were you part of creating jobs in Harlem? Where were you when this craziness was happening? Did you help people? Did we take people in? You know, my family took in uh, uh, a Jewish girl right after the Second World War. My grandparents did that. And although I wasn't around when that happened, but that really defined my whole upbringing, right? This is where we stand as a family. If somebody needs something, the Samson, we come and help out. It might be us. And at the time that they did that, my grandfather, by the way, was unemployed. And they also took a clear decision of not having any more children because they couldn't afford it because they already took in this other girl, right? I don't think I would be adopted if my grandparents I was going to say, and then for people that. who don't know and haven't read the story, then you were adopted, yeah. you and your sister yeah. were adopted from Ethiopia into yeah. a white Swedish family. Yeah. So this is, this is everything. So when I look, I look at my kitchen, I look at the team that I work with, maybe it's 160 employees, maybe there's 90 nationalities, 80 tribes, eight, 10 different languages. Look at our customers from all over the world, right? Gay, straight, uh, Muslim, Christian, whatever, whatever you want, atheist, whatever. But we're in this together. And uh, look at New York City. I can't, I can't I mean, even talk about it. You make an incredible point in the book, throughout the whole book, yeah. too. You, it's almost like in, in every single one of those essays, almost, you mention the, di- the intention of that you built Red Rooster to be the greatest neighborhood restaurant ever, but one that would pull from people yes. all over the city at first and then all over the mm-hmm. country and the world. But it was uh, your mission, wasn't mm-hmm. it? To create a place that would be high and low, yeah. up and down, yeah. and have everybody together. I mean, it's great that you talk about how you how consciously you yeah. built that. I'm, I'm wondering. Um, but I had to go back, actually, because... Once I moved up, and I was highly infused with my mom about this, why don't you just cook affordable food? Why don't you cook in the neighborhood you lived at? And those were things that stuck out to me. This was post 9-11 when you started thinking about this. Yeah, but you know what? I didn't know how to do that. And Harlem taught me, and it was really by looking at in the Gordon Parks books, looking at uh, a couple of photographers, and trying to understand. Great Dan Harlem. Yes. Right, which you, you, you kind of mentioned in one of the later essays. Yeah. You don't, actually, you say that you go, that I was able to create a kind of Great Dan Harlem. Yes. I loved that. But because was, you're referencing all this stuff. But, it's, but it was really about, okay, what does it mean to be a restaurant, which means to you know restore your community? But the way we as chefs sometimes do it, we come in with our 15 dishes, plop them down, put a sign up, and... How come it's not busy? Like I, I need, I needed to understand that that was not this opportunity. That's not what this moment was about. So it took me seven years before I, between I moved to Harlem and I opened Red Rooster, and I had to study it, right? Because the great food that I had in Harlem was not necessarily in restaurants. It was in after church programs. It was great cornbread. It could be like the Jamaican dude selling, you know, jerk in the park. It could be the oyster guy standing above the subway station. So. And it was very awkward to me because it wasn't in a food truck necessarily. It wasn't on a blog, but it was still happening. So how do I, how did I respond to this food that was clearly out here, yet highly misunderstood and not documented in an official way? Did it matter? Did it exist? Then of course it did matter. Of course, of course it existed. So it was really my job to sort of understand that and then put it into the four walls and kick it up. Yeah, I really want to talk about, which we'll get to. How, the way in which you synthesize this stuff and your perfectionism, because uh, I think there are great lessons in that, yeah. which we'll get to. But I, I want to talk about that you're, you're going back to this idea of being an outsider, that yeah. your entire life in a way was about succeeding despite being the other. Yeah. And I'm wondering, how, how did you think of yourself as an African child growing up in Sweden? Like, how were you seen by others? And how is that different in the States before <laughs> and after you became yeah. famous? I mean, first of all, my, like I said, my, we had a Jewish auntie. We also had Korean, we also have Korean cousins. We're French Canadian cousins, you know, really little black kids. Then you have my parents on top of that. So we're a highly diverse family, right? Which is helpful because just like at a family reunion, it's, it's, you know, it's a very, very mixed experience, right? But I, Sometimes being the outsider also helps you to focus because you pick up other things. When I went to Japan the first time, forget being the only black person, that's given, but no one speaks English, by the way. So now I have to learn what they're doing with no language, right? So I have to smell the fish. I have to look at, my eyes have to smile, right? So you become much smarter in other ways of communicating uh, and you, you become a better student, right? When I was in Switzerland, yeah, I could get away with English, but 
German and French was kind of the first two languages there. So I had experience of being an outsider, but of course, that's completely different than the racial context that you also have to deal with on top of that. So I'm always comfortable about being in an uncomfortable situation. I'm extremely, I've done that since I was basically, since I grew up in Sweden. So, and that's such a weird way of thinking about it, but I've always been comfortable in that scenario. But here, I mean, you define yourself a couple of times already as like a black man in America because the issues of race yeah. here are so much more charged. Yeah. So, but growing up, um, did it did it feel the same way? Was judgment right? Because here, judgment is made yeah. on race. As you said, you're walking down the street, someone can look at you. It's different. Yeah. Did it feel that way to you growing up, or was it a big adjustment when you landed here and there's this whole legacy that's it was, different? It was all of the above. You know what I mean? Once MTV came, you know, Michael and Prince made it cool to be black, or Eddie made it cool to be black. So that was a moment that I liked. And then there were moments that was obviously when I became a late teenager. And it was all about sort of what are you going to do in your career? It wasn't that cute anymore. You became sort of like, oh, by the way, I know you were the best student. We were probably not going to pick you. How, you know you what I mean? So you really, you dealt with that Of stuff. course, you deal with that all the, uh, everywhere. So I always How did that, that not kill your spirit? What did you do to it, make it not kill your I, spirit? I, you know what? It almost did. But I think it was really my Swedish dad. He knew this was coming, right? He was always like, so how did he you know, two you? years. You know, so he constantly prepared me. Even as a, as a young kid, I was never allowed to fight. You know what I mean? Because he said, you were gonna get, you're going to get blamed. So you know, you're 13 and someone's calling you a nigger in the, in the, in the schoolyard. And you're not allowed to fight back because I know my whooping from my dad would be more from the whooping <laughs> from the. So you, it's a clear choice, right? Yes. So these are these are things that sort of, and it wasn't easy for him. It wasn't like he was a race scholar or anything like that. You know, he was like, a he was figuring white, it out being your parent exactly. And he come from a small little fishing village. He didn't go to school for that, but he constantly, but he, but he read a lot, and and I think music was there for us in terms of a safe haven. From that was more my mom. And then, you know, my dad was more like, read Alex Haley's book about Malcolm. You should read about James Baldwin. You know, you know, my dad was more like that. It's like, read that and get back to me. You know, so he gave me like homework. Right. And we kind of so figured out. So you read Go Tell on a Mountain as a kid or something? Absolutely. 14 years old, I read it. So, so all of those images sort of helped me just, you know, also part of it is a kid. It's not easy. It's awkward for any kid to, you know, go from 13 to 17, right? And, you know. But did you know you were exceptionally bright? Because it's obviously clear, like, your life has proven it all out. I, were you aware of the fact, like, okay, I'm, I'm different in certain yeah. external ways, but I'm also different internally. I, I see things yeah. some of these kids don't. Did, did it land on you slowly? You said you were the best student, but yeah. how did you sort of, process that that other kind of differentness which is the I, I think, i'm a little bit exceptional difference you know what i think the one thing that that drives you and is 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 that it was very clear to me as a young black man i couldn't i couldn't go get second on anything i wouldn't get anything sure. and that undercurrency uh and i played soccer all my life so that about being number one that drive was very helpful for me right but it was a lot of shit that happened in my life too i you know i was throwing up every day Every day I was thrown up, I was sick, and I still had to go to work. So it was like, obviously that energy, was it wasn't this perfect, you know, kumbayasit scenario, but I, I figured out a way, the drive of getting there was always bigger than this other shit, right? Right, so you pro, you, you're, you made the decision, it's interesting, right? It's that, like that Angela Duckworth thing about yeah. grit. So like you yeah. developed a kind of grit. Yeah. So you weren't even thinking about, oh, I'm smart enough. No. You were more, th like that just uh, was a nice benefit mm -hmm. that you happened to be. Yeah. But you made the decision, like I'm just gonna grind like yeah. a motherfucker and yeah. beat you by working hard. But I knew when I was seven, 18, 19, and I started to write down my food. Yes. And I started to write food that my 19 or 23 year old friends, I thought their food was so simplistic. I'm like, whoa. That's just so, but that's the same dish as we just did, dude. I, and at that point I travel, I'm like, what about if we add miso to the fish and right. then we do a broth with lemongrass? They were like, lemon what? And they were like, oh, there's a great, what if we put butter into the risotto? I'm like, that's just not that advanced. We can yeah. do that. Yeah, that's but that's a me too dish. You know, it doesn't mean it's not a bad. So you started good, thinking about that stuff. Yes. I was going to ask you that next, which is when did food start to really matter to you? Like, when did you realize that's your path? How did I, that happen? You're this great student. You could have gone a lot of different ways. Coming back from Japan. Uh, How old were you when you went there? Uh, 18 and um, highly 
It was this thing about being the other that I couldn't understand. I'm like, how come we only write about French food when I've seen the greatest food cuisine in the world? And I was 18 years old, convinced that Japan was the best country. Still is, but yeah, I was gonna say it's the best food. And I was like, how come food. I don't read about that food? I mean, there was no Nobu. There was like, no. What Japan. year was this? This yeah. is like late eight. So it's like 1990. So I'm like, how come there's no place for me to read about? This food, not just talking about sushi or tempura or, and it was no place. So I was like, we only talk about French food. Italian food has started to come up a little bit, right? But I'm like, somebody lied. Right. I guess I was trying to think when, just now, because I don't know, I don't know if my computer opened, but I wonder when Matsuhisa first opened. It probably in that like era. around 80, I think I remember because like I took my first business trip on yeah. like 88 and I remember, I think going there and realizing, oh my God. Because he took the Peruvian influence. Sure. In, not Nobu. I'm talking about the yeah, original. Yeah, of course. Matisse and La Siena guy. And yeah. I remember going out there and thinking like, uh, uh, my head exploded basically. But it's also pre-internet, right? So there was no connecting ah, tissue. that's right. So, so that's no what you're saying. People tissue. would just tell each other there's this yes. one spot. Yes. And chefs started to know yes. about it. Chef did that. And you know, it was this underground, like if you work with the, fr- the, your, the all the commies in, in a three-star Michelin restaurant, they were Japanese. So I'm like, and by the way, this is guy Wolfgang. He's Austrian. He lives in Los Angeles and he has wasabi on the menu. I'm like, he has wasabi on the menu? This Austrian dude? I'm going. Ah, that's great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. That's how it worked, right? So because there was no connective tissue, it was not like we could have LA Times at our disposable. You know what I mean? Of course, right. So yeah, you had to either go and yes. then you would realize. But then I remember, yeah, yeah, I would come back to New York and there was not, there was nothing like Matsuhisa for like 10 years. Yeah. So so it yeah. was all this stuff that was going on. And I was like, wait a minute. So you go to Japan yeah. just for yourself to travel. Yeah. You know, I, want, I you, went there specifically for Fugo, for Blowfish. Right. You wanted I read to about blowfish. this thing and my dad was like, well, I pay halfway. You got to figure out the rest. And How'd that's, you earn the money? Dude, we did a lot of things. I had a legal club when I was a kid. Um, right. You know, I just hustled. You know what I mean? Like my parents would give me half, but the rest that's I have great. to figure out myself. I had a little catering company, you know. like Did I, you go by yourself or with yeah, a friend? Yeah, of course. No, by, by yourself. Myself, by myself. Because I don't want distraction. I got to go. Like this is, I'm not by myself. You know, in my head, I'm not by myself. Right. I'm by myself, but I'm not lonely. I'm busy, you know, every day. I yeah, got shit to I had homework. this written down to ask you, so I'm just going to ask you now. You, the, your ability to notice things yeah. is really incredible. Yeah. It's all in yeah. the writing that you yeah. do. The way you're able to notice, and then suddenly it, it yeah. you synthesize Connect. it. What's the, so I know as a writer, the way I do it is like I journal every day and yeah. I make notes, and then I'll go back and I'll, it's like whatever kind of bubbles mm-hmm. up. Do you have a process by which you remember, develop, do, or is it just yeah. instinctive? No, I, like how does I take it work a lot of, I take a lot of notes, and... Um, even also, then, were you taking notes? Absolutely. And then also about being, you're by yourself, right? But you're busy as hell. You got homework. And, you know, my father took a PhD, and he's like, anything you want to do, Marcus, that is in the this labor that you picked, you got to treat it like a PhD. It's going to take seven to eight years for you to get your point across, right? So, you know, if you're going to France, you know, you got to study that. So three years before I went to France... I walked around with my son and Walkman just to study French. So when I got to the promised land, I could challenge, I could ready. challenge them. I was ready, you know, and it's like all of that stuff. My dad sort of pre-taught me. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's just good to be by yourself when you feel that busy because you're, you, you have a purpose that is not just going to the Irish pub after work, which is great to have friends to do that, right? But it's also shit. I got to get up in the morning because before work, I got homework. No, I relate to the, I, I cannot tell you yeah. how much I relate to this book. The first piece of my life, yeah. listeners, this know, I was an A&R guy in the music business. Mm-hmm. So nine years of, of doing that. And the way that that started was, you know, I was in college and the first act that I, I've talked about too much, I'm not going to talk about, it, but I would go alone basically yeah. all the time, everywhere to see these artists yeah. play. And it would just be me sitting there with a little notebook <laughs> Yeah, just taking it in and writing my impressions down and yeah. feeling it and remembering it. And there's something about that kind of being isolated but connected. It's very powerful, mm-hmm. and which is clearly it, it, and, it, and it's today. There's so many different ways to do it, right? Uh, because of internet and because of we can jump on a plane much easier. But it also prohibits you from being super creative. I said to myself, if internet would have been around once I read that article about Fugu, I would have gone on YouTube and, and just researched it. I would not have gone to Japan. Today, you're saying? Yes. So guess what? I wouldn't have picked up the other nuances, right? This is almost like lost in translation. You're walking around, you're jet lagged, you're eating bonito flakes, you're eating some street food over here. You, you can't really afford that cocktail, but like, you know, you're doing it anyway. All of that, 
YouTube can't pick that up. So I'm not sure. Yes. But you know, Netflix would be ruined for you now. Right? On the internet. Because I remember the first time I ever saw that on a plate and Mm. they're moving in that way that they move. And I remember having to grapple with trying Mm. to figure, wait, this is dried? Yeah. It's dead. What? Why is it moving on my plate? Now, There's you would see it ahead of time and you wouldn't have that attack. But even before coming to the restaurant, wait, these restaurants are only open four months a year from October to January, which you don't know unless you're there. These restaurants are also in sub, sub, sub basements. You can only pay cash. So there's all these rituals that they know, of course, that you as an outsider have no So you didn't know any of that? None of that stuff. You just went. So, and then we had a friend, um, a friend of a friend that, we eventually, could, like anything, you could stay with, you can help out, and like you sort of made your little money by working for them. But all of that came by being there, right? So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, re, but today is really, you got to use internet as maybe a, a point, but then you got to shut it off because you got to go and experience it yourself, right? And then you can go back to podcast, uh, radio, then you can go to traditional media. The, um, you see, it's, I'm such a, I'm such, such a nerd junkie on terms of, getting information, and then throwing all of that out because it's going to come down to one thing. What's your POV? What's your narrative? Yes. What's your point of view? That's the key to any artist is Anything. W- the point of view, the tone, the voice. Yeah. Which is in your cooking for sure. But I mean, we talked about our buddy David, you know, like, you know, any anyone in Milwaukee can now do those pork buns, right? Yeah. They can do them and they're doing them. <laughs> But you know what? It might not taste the same as it did the first time you went to the noodle bar and just ate them there That's and staring at that uh, McEnroe Pete Sampras picture that he has that one is McEnroe bar. In the door. Yeah, right yeah. when you walk in. And yeah. you know well, that play- original place. And they're playing uh, Wu Tang in the back, and people might be by themselves there, but they're with somebody because they're in that. Everyone in there. You know, understands the moment of why they made that choice to go to that restaurant. Yes, it's, right? it's. I mean, I remember walking in there. It's great because I also remember the first time I ate at Aquavit, actually. Uh, but uh, I remember walking into Chang's place for the first time two months after he opened Noodle mm. Bar because mm. fr- chef friends of mine were all going there late at night. Yeah. So I'd heard from a cook that he was going to this place late at night. Yeah. And I went. And, you know, they were, it was the beginning of the summer and they were doing the corn, uh, which they only did during the summers. Uh, and, the pork bun, and I remember it was an yeah. explosive. That your 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 brain melted the first time you had it, and you realized because there was this clear, there was this thought behind. Of it. course, of course, but, we're downtown. We're in New York City. Uh, I like food. I'm not sure if I like you, right? But I'm doing it, and it's going to be awesome. I don't even care if you like me. I but know it's this awesome. is delicious. This fuck is delicious. You if you don't exactly. think so, you can leave. So it's a point of view. And my whole thing about that was the seven years it took for me. Was about Marcus. You got to come up with a point of view. It's got to be highly original. So for me, listening to people like Phil Akuti, Miles Davis, are highly original. So the, for me, it was like all this is noise, all this is homework. But then you got to be highly original. Oh, that is so important. So a lot of artists listen to this show. Yeah. And a lot of people yeah. trying to get the best out of themselves creatively listen mm-hmm. to this. Like they are trying to tap into it. And I often say like. Y- y- you exp- if you're writing a book, go find the music mm. or the film. Like go outside of your discipline, and you have to know all this stuff. Yeah, you have to expose yourself to the emotion you get mm. to then put that into the yeah. thing you're doing, which you do. Yeah, clearly. So it's so it's so it's really also an opportunity to um, how do you define blackness in a way that adds farmers market and this moment that we're in, right? And not hitting it in a traditional way, which is sort of one of the reasons why we're here. Without civil rights movement, I wouldn't be here. Without uh, everything, so I stand on the shoulder of that, but then also I want to add a nuance, and that's why the migration and global immigration is so important for me, because I'm a representative of both, in a way. And not fully understand, I'm, I'm clearly talking about that in the book and in the restaurant, not fully having the answer to neither one, but I'm, 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 I'm going through it. And I'm going to present chase it to is you. the thing, the curiosity and fascination yeah. is what matters. Yes. People often ask us and ask you for the answer. Yeah. And I'm, I always say the only reason I can still create like the billions, people always ask about these characters. They want me to tell them why Bobby Axelrod does what he does, the Damien mm. Lewis character. And I'm like, 
I'm still trying to figure yeah. out. That's why I can write about him for five yes, years. Yes, exactly. I'm trying to figure out why. I'm mm-hmm. studying it the best I can. But, but being open, so, so that idea of being transparent and open, before when, when at Aquavit, I always felt that had to be perfection of Scandinavia. Perfection of Scandinavia, and here it is. No questions asked. This is what it is. I was going to say there was no jazz in that food no. at all. I so, remember there was a formalism, right? Yeah. So there was, a, if you talk about periods of an artist, mm-hmm. I remember eating that place, and like every single thing was exactly as yeah. it was supposed to be. You know, it, the the uh everything was served the service was amazing yeah. and the food was proper yeah but uh it was almost and it was great i went many times mm. but it was a coldness to it yeah and there's so much warmth in what you do yeah. now well do you, I mean, what do you ascribe that well to? i think two things the understand i there's a couple of things there right first of all i look at uh, myself and scandinavians never see themselves as minorities swedes are minorities i'm just saying right but they don't think about themselves as minority, not external, right yes. so so much about that food was to explain a point of view that very few people understood right so having that an aesthetic point of view that was clear having a flavor profile that was very clear maybe not always delicious but highly intellectual and clear fit, fit that so it fit the room well the room was amazing the room. and then yes. there was the and room was, like this was great i'm not sure if i liked everything but it was expensive and great and it's from northern sweden northern europe so it better be great here's 200 bucks right that was the conversation right with but it's this idea identity of minority being heard i cooked from that point you were again. thinking about that then all the time even as a 23 year old Constantly, and I'm like, how come? And I was always inspired by the fact that Swedes never thought about themselves as minority. So wait a minute, we minority, we're we're in New York City, we're in America. So this idea of being minority, you can still be heard, not being paranoid by that, but it can also be a very strong source of a point of view. But, so yeah. so coming to uh, Red Rooster and sort of understanding that moment, I actually knew less about it than the Swedish, of course, because I grew up with it. But I was clearly, I wanted to be open about not saying to the audience, hey, come along for this ride. This is going to be an imperfect journey. And uh, I'm going to take a shot at this. And you guys can take a shot at me. But I'm, I'm, I'm footing the bill for a lot of this. And come along on the ride, right? Yeah. That's what well, that is. It's interesting, right? Because you say late in the book, you say, uh, if I know nothing else, I know cooking is not a formula. It's a yeah. way. Yes. But at Aquavit, you, there, it's clear that it was the other thing. Yeah. It was... A rigid, there was a rigidity yeah. to what you were doing. And then somehow, can you talk a little bit about this idea of, if I know nothing else, I know cooking is not a formula. It, uh, it's a way because in Japan too, in a lot of the places, oh, right? Don't ask any questions. Like, right. I mean, if you go to a kaiseki place that yeah. does a certain thing, they do a certain thing in a certain mm-hmm. way. So how did you come to this knowledge and how does it inform what you do now that it's a way, was there a freedom in, in coming Yeah, there was two things that I decided on that year break was very important to me. I I knew I would work hard. I knew I would put out a lot, right? So the one thing I decided was that I have to be happy, right? I no longer have to show that I can be great. I have to be happy. And, um, you know, you can be in a very dark place and trying to create happy, right? Even if it's just in utopia over there, you don't even know what that might be but that was very important to me and trusting other art forms more like allowing music to take a major part might even overshadow the shadow the food sometimes but it was clearly to be in and of and tell the story about the migration music is the broccoli do you know what i mean and then art being like no, it's just not stuff on the wall. It's actually going to tell a story and inform the guest about where we are. Right? So now I felt like I had, these guys are not backup singers in my restaurant. This is the bass guitar. You know, this is really the lead. I might be the drummer or the lead vocalist. It's okay, you know, because we're going to present something that is larger. And in order to do that, sometimes, you know, sometimes you're large in Metallica, like driving that. And sometimes you like up front and you Michael and sometimes, you know, you just go to the left and you can be, you know. Right. But you give yourself the freedom slash. behind the drum to sometimes be Lars and sometimes be Max Roach. Yes. yes I mean, yes. you're playing, you're, uh, you're allowing this restaurant to be what you feel it should be like. Yes. So I, I you know, I, I you know, uh, in the, when you're talking about the fried chicken mm. and you say, because everything you're saying now makes sense, but when one reads the book, one sees this wrestling match between this thing you want yeah. to be 
which is free to be an artist yeah. and to say things like it's not a formula, it's a way. Yeah. But then this perfectionism that is that anyone who creates stuff recognizes as the torture we all have to yeah. fight. And so, I mean, you, that fried chicken story where you say, I started to obsess. And when uh, I obsess, I do three things. I research, I run, all, all this stuff. But we get to that John Legend story where, yeah. you know, you're feeling defeated because your perfectionism is getting the best of you. And then John tells you, what does he say to you? You're fucking overthinking it. Just fry the damn bird. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and he's like, I'm going to come up and show you, right? And it's like this moment of, you know, you ask yourself, should I, should, this choice is, should I pickle it? Should I preserve it? Should I skin on, skin off, right. bone in, bone out, white meat, dark meat, whole, chi whole chicken, all of these different choices, right? Yeah, you seem paralyzed. When, yeah. when you're reading the book, you seem paralyzed by mm. this decision of yeah. how to do this. And he frees you. Yeah. But uh, how do you battle it now for yourself like get the most out of the standards yeah. of perfectionism but then find a way to experiment and fail publicly what you do is you were already famous yeah. before you started this restaurant like how did you how did you finally break free from that to the extent that allowed you to do the thing and to fail well first of all I mean, we, you succeeded wildly but, but we, how did you risk get comfortable enough to risk the failure first of all i i don't I don't look at it. Like, we're in the beginning of the movie, by the way. We're we're like in the we're like in the first eight yeah. minutes, yeah. right? And so, I think the end of the movie, the chicken might not even be there at Rooster. It might not. Do you know what I mean? And we might, you know, like at Aquavita, I always toyed with this idea. Well, what if I don't serve herring? But right. I couldn't. I couldn't move away from it. The so herring always stayed, right? But my ultimate goal was to say, okay, no more herring. Yes. What happens to that idea? Because I wanted to show that, of course, as Swedes, we are more than just one thing. As people of color, we're more than one dish, right? We're vegetarians. We are a black. Uh, it's highly, just like any culture, it's highly contradictional and multilayered. And you can be 2022 vegan, live in Harlem, work in Brooklyn, and, you know, don't eat fried chicken. Sure. And you're, you know, you're not less black than that. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, like take you on a journey. And so you're- Go places. Yes. So you're continuing. But I get that you're continuing then to stretch. But I guess what I'm also asking is, in your creative process, it seems like you get, uh, you can get stuck for a minute in mm -hmm. trying this standard, the thing you talked about when you were a kid, knowing you had to yeah. be the best. Yeah. That's a, that can yeah. get you somewhere, but that yeah. also can become torturous. Yeah. And so how, right. Still, but, I mean, yeah, that's my, what I'm saying. That's, that's what you obviously wrestle. <laughs> it's not yes, so, Right. I'm saying that's clearly, when you read the book, that's the subtext that you're wrestling yeah. with these two ideas, wanting to be as free as your sax player, yeah. but wanting to uh, continue to be great. So right. how do you tell yourself that story so that you will take risks? Continue to take risks, but I, I I think it's it's you have to the one thing that all the good chefs really have the great chefs right is they're highly curious about the next right themselves they're highly curious right their level of curiosity operates on a completely different level yes. right yes and the day when that curiosity is gone then you are making that bun on the second floor in Milwaukee. You are, right? Which is nothing wrong with that. There's a place for that, right? If you want to, you know, there's a place for that. There's nothing wrong with that. But yes. the curiosity level has Brilliant. to be there. And for me, I can't tell you what that's going to be in two years. I just know it's going to be there. And um, it might, you know, it might take form in a different way, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have this written down. I mean, I always say, like, curiosity and obsession are yeah. the reasons for my mm -hmm. own. Mm -hmm. So, like, that is the whole fuel for me. Yeah. Uh, but I know that that uh, many things kind of trigger a little of it. But when you dive in, what you get from reading this book is, like, there is nothing you took for granted. When you yeah. dive in, it's not just, like, casual. No. It becomes truly obsessive. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, like, many things must trigger it a little. How do you know when it's really the one to follow? Like, what are the signs for you? You're all like, like you did the Fuku thing. So you went yeah. and had to learn all about it. Yeah. Then you didn't end up deciding to go cook that or to open a Japanese restaurant. How far do you go before you figure out what the path is each time? Well, do you chase different little obsessions a lot? I, you know, in my, in my search, I trust, I trust Japan and Singapore probably the most 
because the, if you ask me, I know I don't look like that, but my flavor palettes are right there, right? And they're very different. Because Singapore, you can find Indian breakfast. It's an undercurrency of Chinese culture. But then the Portuguese were there, and then the Arabs are in there. So it's highly mixed, right? That from street food, that is where I kind of trust my flavor box. It's right there. Then obviously, I want to tell a larger tale about this complex Africa, right? That, you know, that it, we don't have to be one thing that, you know, that it shows a level of sophistication and mystique. So there is Singapore and Japan there. And then you throw Africa in there. And then I learned a lot from Europe. You know, I can't just throw that out. As a technician, that made me this sort of classical musician in terms of discipline and aesthetic. Sweden taught me more about design and beauty than any other country. So I want to bring that in and then shake that hard. Now, I don't even understand. I don't even think that you, the person, the audience, would right away understand that. So writing is a great way for me to give you context that you can dive back to when you do come up. And you see this highly contracted place. I gave you some context. I gave you some other context and content around it to explain this moment. Are you still as curious? Like, do you still go look for the next oh, new thing? Even more, even more. But I also don't. I don't go and look for the for the thing for an answer. I have right. to go back and articulate, internalize. And, and, and deal with this, right? So right now I'm thinking a lot about fermented shrimp powder, right? That I've been thinking about. For this is what I want to ask you. What yeah. are you thinking about? So, for how long have you been thinking so, about it? But maybe 11 years in my head. And I'm like, should I make a tea out of it? And this comes from Senegal that I've had there many times. And obviously I live next to little West Africa. But then I think about that fermented shrimp powder and how I can make a broth for you and then just serve maybe raw hamachi in it. Now, that's Harlem to me because we're in this moment where we're opening sushi restaurants in Harlem, right? Sure. So how can I talk oh, yeah. about that? Not my restaurant, but how can I talk about this moment but make it highly personal to you? Well, Little West Africa is right there. The shrimp pot is right there. The broth, I know Bonito. And then this moment, maybe we make that broth with chicken skin. And then I slide some graced hamachi. And that explains new, that bridge, the, the global immigration of Harlem right there, right? When's that dish showing up? Oh, and I'm really messing with it. I'm taking on, to I'm, often I try it outside the restaurant so it doesn't become this idea of it doesn't fit yet. So I train, I cook with it at home. When I go on cooking tours, I try it because you can have a freedom and a one night event that you can't really bring into the restaurant sometimes. So can, can let's, there's this confidence when you speak about this stuff that's really mm. inspiring and great. But it almost, uh, when, 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 when I read your book, mm. I was also struck by, you know, there was this question, did you get it right? And you wrote, sometimes, yeah, maybe sometimes, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. And it does seem like you're still wrestling with doubt well, or me, being satisfied or thinking it's good enough. Like, can you get to the place? I'll give you, I'll give you an example. If you're not going to talk about matcha's herring, right? Matcha's herring. Yeah. I grew up where all of that exists. I can tell you if that matcha's herring, is, it needs to be this firm, but not too firm. The potatoes underneath needs to be this tiny, small new potatoes, and it's going to be wild chives chopped on top. There's going to be a brown butter that we put on top of it, and I know exactly when to squeeze in the lemon juice. I add a little bit of soy, and then we fresh grated horseradish on top of that. Now, if that matcha's herring is not perfectly firm, that whole dish breaks down. I grew up eating that. You know it inside I did not grow you. up eating fried chicken. So I can't look you in the eyes and break that moment down for you in the same way as I just broke down this moment to you. And there, there is the level of doubt, right? But I'm, I wanted to be open with that. I said, okay. You've become comfortable with being yeah. out on that cliff, not knowing. It, that must be hard for it, someone who's always yeah, but, succeeded. but... Within that, it also like there is that great drummer that comes through and explains it for you. And the fuck, he does it better than me. Oh shit! Right. I can rely. These cooks are not just instrument that are going to do what I say. These guys can actually add to the movie and make it better. I never dealt with food that way. I've never. I looked at all of these people. I like, oh yeah, help out. This is what we're doing. I lead. I drive the bus. No right. question asked. Why? I mean, I've done this since That's I was sure, well because you learned that way coming up in those. And I've done it since I was twenty-two. Right. And all of a sudden, like, oh, there's another guy in this. And, oh, and I can learn. It's almost like that moment of, huh. of heat when Robert Nero meets Al Pacino. And like, oh, shit, this scene's going to be awesome because we're going to make it awesome together. Now, I'm learning that. 
Now you're learning. Yes. And you're still in a position of yes. wanting to learn. Yeah, you say about your sax player, and it seems to me you've learned from your relationship with yeah. him. What's yes. his name? Is Rakim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he constantly challenged, and also because he was born, raised in that piece, right? Like he knows every street. He knows every moment. He knows the shack that was there before and what they serve. You know, yeah. You say about him, he's in love with his craft and yeah. always striving toward distinction. Yeah, and I think that might be like, in a way, a secret of a certain kind of success. Like this idea of being in love with what you're doing and striving yes. for a distinction. Yeah. It, it, did you start phrasing that to yourself at a certain time? Did you realize this? Do you learn as you write? How does that all work uh, for you? I mean, I mean, I've, al I've always since day one been in love with my craft, right? Because it's so much part craftsmanship so much part artistry and then out of the bottom of everything again i'm a fisherman's son so it's very blue collar right right and it has this sort of di different elements that you know if i would have been a kid born today i probably would you know be diagnosed by add or some shit like that right i'm glad i mean we didn't have we didn't even no one knew what that was when i was i'm a kid. the same i yeah. was undiagnosed too in so the same way. so yeah. cooking allows you that actually becomes sometimes an advantage because you need the energy you, but then also going to a museum and being around artists understands that, okay, there's a moment to slow that down. So cooking, humble, slicing salmon or butchering chicken is that moment of slowing everything down, right? So I'm in love with the craft because there's so many different types of speeds to it, right? It's jazz, hip-hop, trap, rock and roll, rhythm blues all in one. When you do the blue-collar labor, when you're just butchering and working, it's also a moment for slow it down. And you're a blues man, and everything, everybody left you, right? Like, who's really going to be with us, right? Like, we're not there. We're constantly in our head somewhere else, right? You know, so well, the you fight is to stay present. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the big fight in life yeah. is if you can just be right Call here. Call me when you figure that out. I would yeah. love to know when you figure that out. Well, you have to repeat it to yourself. Meditation helps. Do you meditate? I do you do TM? Lot. I cook a lot, man. The TM <laughs> really helps yeah, with I'm being sure. present. I'm it sure. really does. But uh, but that is the whole thing we fight to yeah. do. That and this thing you're just talking about, mm. which is somehow exerting the control you need to, but knowing that you can mm. let go. Yeah. That seems the other piece that you're just, yeah. with this restaurant, starting yeah. to figure out for yourself. And I'm older, so I've, I could probably, you know, this idea of, you know, when you were a kid coming up, you're like, well, you know, you're the only black chef that does this on certain levels. So if you don't do it this way, for the French traditional way, you're out, right? Yeah. Out. As you, after a while, when you've been doing it for a while, I was like, wait a minute, this shit is documented. This happened. This allows me to actually go in a different direction. It's right. not like anyone's sure. going to take, although it's just stuff on my resume, it's not like anyone can take those moments away, right? It happened. So now I can actually say, you know what? Let's go in the unknown and let's like not try to be like, like this. Um, let's actually try to open up an, a bit, you know? And I, I look at it very much like, you know, the musicians, you know, was, like. Yeah, it's like when, when, when Winton first was playing. Yeah. And it was all boom, boom. It was. The, again, that formalism, and then this growing awareness well, of you know, like... Look at an artist like Prince, you know, in the 80s was very much like creating these great greatest hits, and it was amazing albums, like, you know, like, but it was still very hit-driven music in, 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 in the 90s, and after that, late 90s, it was more obscure, just as important music, I mean, but he opened up and, as an artist, and you didn't, you could go to concert, and you're actually happy if he didn't play, if he didn't finish with, with, uh, one of the 80s classic, we were, I was, everybody was good with that because it was, his band was still tight. He was still an awesome, art, art, you know, so I think it's. Well, you, he found a way to be present when yeah. he was on stage. I mean, I mean, he was living in it. Even look at David Bowie, you know what I mean? When, you know, there's a lot of artists that I looked at that after coming out of Let's Dance and, and then going back and doing like Tin Machine. Like, what the hell? What is that? It's a completely yeah. different direction. Though, though um, there was, it's interesting that you point to him because. That same kind of coldness and formalism did really exist for a long time in yeah. his music. Yeah. And in fact, I don't know that he ever, I mean, he's one of the greatest artists who ever lived, but I think he didn't swing, ever really let himself just swing. There was always, even that last album, the way it came yeah. out, there was a measure of control. But we, I'm, I'm the same. Like, I wanted to feel free, ah. but it is obviously definitely highly Curated, paranoia planned. behind it. You know what I mean? You know, I'm like highly paranoid about shit when it comes to food. I mean, why hide on that? I mean, you don't think David is? <laughs> right. 
No, you don't Chao think, Chang? You no, don't think Mario is highly paranoid when it comes to food? Yes, he is. I mean, in that, a good way. I mean, not they're different in different ways, but yes. yes. <laughs> There's an improvisational quality at times in certain chefs that certain yeah. chefs have. Yes. Um, but yes, the balance between mm-hmm. being improvisational yeah. and wanting to, I mean, people make a, they have to make a reservation in advance for your place. They yeah. have to really think about it. I mean, not for all your plate, mm-hmm. but for Red yeah. Rooster, the main yeah. place. And so you have to deliver for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a couple, there was a very important moment in Aquavit's time where we, in 98, we started vegetarian tasting menu, right? And it was, uh, and then we started at the same time also a 16 course bite menu, right? That was the moment where I understood that, oh, you can do Swedish food, but it doesn't have to include the herring, right? And I point to that sure. because there's going to come a moment where we ju- we were going to go into tasting menu, whatever the right appropriate moment for tasting menu 2021 is at Rooster, right? Because it's not going to be the same. It's not a backward looking machine. I got to be there. When you, you know throw what I mean? that tasting menu up, yeah. I got to be in the house. In that, and we might, you know, we're going to experience there. very differently. Um, all right. I, I was just, I was just told we only have a few more minutes. So I have a, a few other things I want, I want to, I want to talk about. Um, I want to talk about America in a second, but before we do, um, there's a ton of conflict around this idea uh, in a lot of writing about chasing your dream. Mm-hmm. So like, what is the advice you give aspirants about this? Like, how do you see the question of talent versus effort? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how do you, how do you talk to young people who think this life is the one that they really want and they want to chase this idea? Well, you got to be deeply in love with the craft, yeah. right? Because talent is one thing, but then the discipline around how do you practice, right? And we, you know, we don't all have to be guys that practice 10 hours a day, but like there's got to be a level of practice, right? Talent is there, but then you got to sort of, because if you don't practice, you don't even know. You got to also edit yourself, right? Or have people around yes. you that edit. Rigor so, and... Yeah. So that moment between... So there's many things that you got to sort of chop up in order to, to... And you look at the great chefs, why they have 20, 30, 40 years conversations with the public. Because there are a, 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 both a discipline between talent, but also this idea about how do I cut some stuff, but also the work ethic of it, right? You know... The mediums have changed, right? Instagram, Twitter, uh, blogs, all of this different stuff. But if you line up, you know, JG can still do it in multi-countries, although the mediums and the the way we've done it has changed, right? And he's actually not a chef that is very uh, much on, me- on in media. Yeah, George is Yeah, JG yeah. is just an awesome talent, highly curious if he wouldn't have gone to bangkok in the early 80s we wouldn't have had vong which means that we wouldn't have had jg right we would have had another great french chef there's high there's a major difference there between having just you're another talking about this obsession this yeah. rigor yes that, that if you want to chase your dream you have to do it yeah by knowing well because the thing is when you were coming up and when mario was coming yeah. up chefs weren't rock stars no now you guys are all right you and mario yeah. and John George and mm-hmm. Dave are rock stars. And so that changed the kind of person who wants to emulate you. Well, it, it doesn't, doesn't change. Have, you know, there's another, there, you know, there's, you know, if you look at real rock stars, right? They are, you know, you think Keith has to be on the guitar and travel 200 days a year? I don't think so. I think his love for the guitar and when I he's think doing, about Paul Simon right? is very much like a chef. When yes. I think about Paul Simon, yeah. the way he approaches this stuff. But when you see when you see people like been doing it for a long time, and I'm not saying even long. You think Jacques Papin? You think he has to go on those things? But he does he it because he, he needs it, to. and he loves to, and he wants to know. He's like he sees me and he's like kiddo, kiddo, and he slaps me. He's like I want to taste this new. Have you heard about this? He still asks me things every. We only talk about food. We have a, I've known him for 20 years of my life. He's like, have you seen this new thing? That's I had this great. new dish. This was not good, Marcus. What is it? We argue about food. Highly argumentative about food. But it's like you know, an intense conversation, right? And when I do that, I'm like, I know I'm in this for the right place. I learn from the right mentors. And, you know. That with, makes total sense. It makes sense. People are so passionate. I mean, I, I went to this place the other night, Shuku, which I'm mm-hmm. sure, and, and I blew my mind, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sitting there with Jimmy was serving me directly. Yeah. And I mentioned it to someone else last night or somewhere I was, and they were like, no, American, nobody Korean 
Because one of those two guys is Korean, can cook Japanese. This guy was, and I was like, and we almost got in a yeah, fight yeah, at yeah, a poker table. Exactly. I was like, you do not understand. Yeah, <laughs> this guy is the real. And like, there is so much pop yes. and passion about what you do now. Yeah, it must feel. Does it feel great to be at the center of the cultural conversation in that way in this country? I mean, I would like to say no. It doesn't matter. It does matter because every artist wants to be seen. But I can't allow that to enter. You know, my thought process, I actually think that's a little bit more pressure, but we thrive on pressures, right? So, I, you know, the easy answer would be like, oh, it doesn't matter at all. But you like it. Of course it doesn't matter because it's like we we can't do it without the audience, right? And we can't do it without, for me, I can't do it without, actually, this moment we're in right now fuels the hell out of me. Sure. The moment in the world. Oh, my we're God. In. Yes. You know? Well, yeah, uh, for for sure. I mean, that's what I, I, I want to say, you know, you're... Clearly, when someone reads your thing and the way you tell your story, mm. you're a hopeful person. Are you able to find hope right now for our our country? I and I just have two more. Questions I never, I never, I always thought that this moment could happen. Once I started to see sort of Trump rallies, and once Bannon came out. You clearly know there is an undercarriage of just pure hate right there, right? Just yes. pure hate, and that hate. Because it's so much rooted in elitism and, 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 and whiteness, as a black man, you never underestimate that. Because you've seen that movie before. Yeah, as a cultural Jew, you yeah. don't either. I'm an atheist, but I'm of a cultural course, Jew. Of course. So as a cultural Jew, you don't, so you don't ever that, underestimate it once either. Once I saw that, I'm like, okay, this is not Hillary against the Bushes or something like that. This is something else. And that something else reminded me very much about, you know, Nixon's era in this you know but even before that in the 60s when it was clearly like you know you know you think about how mlk was shot you think about moments in american specifically african-american culture where you know you think about how the panther party was disegmented the government clearly had a role in this period of paranoia and it, it reminded me a little bit of this moment that obviously with internet you can create late 60s that. early 70s yeah. Well, we, we did recover from that for a long time. Sure. But then also what people, what I knew, I knew that Barack obviously represents so much more to the world. And for, uh, a, you know, for Bannon's side of the view, view of the world, that is not just about being a president. And there, that, that is so against everything else, right? You, you, you can put KKK in there. You can put a lot of stuff in there, right? And I knew that as much as, Barack was like sort of we are the world and the world loved it. American, that side of America. A segment of America. A big segment of America. 36%. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, because it's clear, if, if, if would any other person that was not male or white would come up with any of this nonsense, they would be like, get the fuck out of here. No, 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 get the fuck out of here. And actually, don't ever fucking come back. So what this, do you right? see as a path out of this? I think it's an opportunity. Of, uh, it's, a, it's a great moment. Because maybe everybody needed this, sh you know, the only way to deal with it is like, okay, let's reestablish, let's, let's go to the bottom and then come back up. And what, uh, one thing I do know about America, when America gets pushed, it always come back better, strong, not perfect, but much that's, stronger. That's a great, mo that's a great way to find hope. You right? know, I, and I, that's I, what I believe in. I have two more sort of earthbound questions. One, uh, you know, I realized recently, like, I don't have a typical experience in restaurants usually. I go to restaurants that my friends yeah. are the chefs or they own. Yeah. Or somebody has told somebody to, yeah. like, look after me. Yeah. And I kind of can go to restaurants in a way that most people can't. And so, which is an incredible, yeah. amazing privilege that has to do with, like, the work I've done and all no, that. No, you stuff. arrived there is way before, way beyond VIP status. That's right. like, a, I'm, I'm you're saying, in the club. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. like, but that is, but what I want to know is, like, what does a customer have to do at a restaurant like Rooster to become a regular, to be noticed long-term? Sure. have Because right, most people want it. Like there is the ability, there's that feeling of walking into a place and feeling like you belong. Now you create that. Yeah. I know you want every customer to feel like that, no, but you know no, what I'm asking? That's a great question. Like, but I think it's also being there for the chef when it's not eight o'clock on a Saturday. Yeah, so tell me, what does people, what should someone, you know, if it's a favorite restaurant and hey, I want to be, I want to be considered part of the yeah. family. What so do you there, have to do? That's a great question because there's so many times that I actually can get that support. Uh, come and support on an awkward moment, right? Like four o'clock on a Sunday or that rainstorm, that snowstorm night in January when we need you on a Tuesday and it's windy. Come out, sit in the bar, have a bourbon, 
you know what? Chef's going to come out and have a conversation. And guess what? He's going to throw you a new dish. And that's a sign yes, of love. that's the best. Whether that dish worked or not, it's that just like, matter. that's the oh, best moment in the world. And yeah. then keep coming back. You know what I mean? But you don't, it doesn't, then you can say, hey, my buddies are in town. We're going to have an eight o'clock reservation on a Saturday. That's a status you can arrive at. But if you want that inside love, it's actually see us on that Tuesday in Feb. And you've uh, trained your staff to notice it, that you notice if, if somebody comes in seven times yeah. over a few months and yeah. they're, they express their love. Do you but want them to say, like, but you can that's the mechanism of being in hospitality, right? But if you go back to that question, the core of that is not about throwing the biggest tip, no, right? That's throwing the asking. most amount of money, don't whip your car. Like that's all what I'm of asking. that is okay. It's more about see me when I want you to see me, when I'm trying to do something here. When I'm trying, I don't know if that vegetarian menu dish is gonna work, but do you mind? Are you a soft tofu guy? Are you or you know, or you're not? Well, if you talk to the chef about that and you tell him your experience or her experience about it. Like, oh, dude, I, we have one here. Like right there, you open yourself up to like. Do people ever say not to ask for you? Like, hey, can I thank the chef? Even if you're not there. And sure. I mean, like that. there's and, many ways. Sometimes they're bringing beers to the, to the team. Or sometimes, you know, we have an open kitchen. And, and that's they're really great. about anonymous labor or being visible. But I do think that it is. The beer thing's awesome. Come, come and see us. You know, like, I start, not to throw names, but like I, I talked to actually to Sting about this when he came. It's so like he said. You know, if when you're I gonna throw a name, that's a yeah, good but, one. Go but ahead. he said, yeah. like, you know, when we came in the late seventies uh, and performed the Lori in DBGB, there were three people in the audience. Yeah, I traveled all over the world, and everyone comes up to me and say, "I was one of those three people." And he said, like, "No, you weren't, because <laughs> I know yes. who those three people were." And no, for, obviously, for him, becomes his ultra fans. Like he and he, they probably he. Always feels in oh he owes those three guys everything right yes. so come and see me on that awkward Tuesday. That's great. That makes know? total sense. All right, last question is this: so I went to school, I went to Tufts outside of uh, Boston, and I got went to this Ethiopian restaurant called Asmara that's yeah. in Cambridge, and I fell in love with Ethiopian food. Yeah. I mean, I love it. I know all the dishes, yeah. and it's a yeah. thing. I have not found the amazing Ethiopian place in this city, New York, where we're sitting right now. How come there isn't? Maybe you know one, but yeah. there's one in Harlem. And they're no. okay. There's nothing that's amazing. No. Have you thought about doing it? And also, oh. why do you think no one's done it? Because I think Ethiopian food could explode. Oh, it's fun to God. eat. The flavors are amazing. If you've had Dora Watt, like there's nothing <laughs> that tastes like that food presented oh. in that way. You can't, first of all, you can't ask that as the last question because that's a whole podcast by what itself. Is, that's like such an unfair question. But okay, here we go quickly. They're amazing Ethiopian food. Uh, but in DC, I would say, and a little bit outside DC with the community, with the cab drivers, with our community really live. And uh, the second good Ethiopian food city would be Atlanta. The third would be Dallas. But so, so it's food that is cooked from us, by us, for us, right? So Ethiopian by tradition, are very traditional people, and you food is tribal, so you don't cross. Ah. You just don't take this and marry it with that because the food is part of your tribe and identity, right? It's also cooking with a spiritual compass, which is very different when you cook in a restaurant. But this city, so Blue Nile was the last yes. really great Ethiopian yeah. restaurant in the city, or very good. I don't know, yeah. maybe to you it wasn't great, but like to me... That was, I felt like they were trying to execute on a high level. I think that place closed like 16 years ago, yeah. 17 years ago. <laughs> so, I mean, but then, so the other part is that then when you represent, everyone has this Ethiopian auntie that says like, oh, you can take Berber and put it on here. And I'm like, actually, you can. You know, I'm not Japanese, but I put Tukarashi ah, in so, my fucking so the, cereal. <laughs> so, you're, so are you scared about the tradition? Like, no, is that so, what? Yeah. I, yes, I'm do, I mean, I, I use Berbere, I used to spice butter, I used all of these ingredients. So there are many Ethiopian hints in there without me framing it. And yeah, you have a whole section on Berbere yeah, in the book, and, but. And I, you know, I tried to in Mercado, right? And I failed miserably, right? When I did Mercado in the meatpacking, I failed and it, 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 it burnt the shit out of me, right? Like this, right? But it doesn't mean I'm not going to go back and try to, to really have, a nuance on it. But for example, my wife teaches me so much about the why. As a chef, you want to land uh, on the flavor. And she's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You need to know the why. So I'm in that sort of school right now where, 
you know, I don't know ever if she's going to allow me to graduate because <laughs> just no idea about having a wife. It's like, but you don't get out of the house. trying it again. Of like course. trying to do an Ethiopian, a proper yes. Ethiopian restaurant. Absolutely. I but I don't know if we would see, it wouldn't maybe be the flag or, you know, I'm, I'm sure Haile Selassie would be in there. But, you know, but, you know, like it's definitely there, you know. That's but. brilliant. The flag is up in every Ethiopian restaurant I've ever been in. Yes. That's brilliant, man. <laughs> I never caught that. So that's your eye. That's Marcus yeah, Samuelson's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, do, eye. Like, because I've been in all of so many and the flag is always up. That's hilarious. All right. That's a great play. There you go. So that's the writer's eye yeah. that you bring to yeah. this stuff. That's a detail I should have. As soon as yeah, you yeah. said it, I literally, a montage of these flags and all these restaurants. The flag is not there. That's no, the question. that's exactly. Yeah. Should you eat there or not? There's this incredible place in Ethiopia where they've served sushi for years without even thinking about Japan, right? Because it's this raw food culture in Ethiopia. Uh, it's called Kitvo. But then in a certain place where around Lake Tana, they don't really have meat as much as they have fish. So they do this sort of crudo style, which like, oh my God, as somebody you just want to present African crudo to the world. Have you shown that to Pasternak ever? He would freak out. <laughs> yeah, have you shown out. him? He would love that. He would like, Marcus, sh- what the fuck are these guys doing? They don't Can know I anything. Can I put figlings in there? How oh my God. It's like, too spicy. He would scream at them. And I, lo- I love it. <laughs> Me too. That Ask, sorry, I was talking about David Pasternak, who's the great, oh, best crudo chef, oh I think, my God. at uh, Esco. Marcus Hamilton, we Thank could do this so for much. hours. Thank you for doing this. People should read your book, yeah. go to your restaurants, and um, appreciate this incredible perfectionism and love that's in every single plate that, that you serve. So thanks for this. People can find you on Twitter. What's your name on there? Is it just your name? Uh, Marcus Cooks. Marcus Cooks on Twitter. I'm at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. If you have anything you want to say, I will eventually get back to you. All right. Thanks, folks. Thanks for listening.